This is Legal Luminaries. Join us as we delve into the inspiring stories of some of the greatest legal minds to have shaped South Africa's democracy and law. I'm Iman Repetti, your guide through the series. Hello and welcome once again to the special podcast series in partnership between Juta and Jacaranda FM. The Legal Luminaries is all about building a legacy for future generations based on the experiences and contributions of South Africa's leading legal minds. And it has been such a treat over the last while to go back to those who have defined the way law is conceived and the way that it is practiced, not only in our country, but also across the world. And to this point, our special guest today is Judge Navi Pillay, full name Navanitham Pillay, but we just call her Navi. And it's lovely to have her in our company today. Judge Pillay has had over 60 years on the bench. So part of our task today is really just to lean back, have a conversation, find out how it all began and what stands out in Judge Pillay's mind as some of the most significant moments in her illustrious career. Judge, it is such a pleasure and a privilege to have you with us today. And in our audience are disparate people from across South African society and wherever this podcast reaches, who really just want to understand what it takes to build a career such as yours, and what justice means not only in the world, but specifically in South Africa, in a context of continuous change and chaos. So welcome to the program today. And I guess The first question is, how did you get your start as an international judge? Well, thank you, Iman, so much and Juta Marketing for giving me this opportunity. I'm very pleased to join you and I respect the uh, judges whom you've already interviewed as, as colleagues. You know, it's 60 years in the legal profession, I would say, not 60 years as a judge. Yeah, so when I was uh, little in primary school, then the teacher asked us, what would you like to do when you grow up? And I said, lawyer. And he said, oh, so your father must have a lot of money because it costs a lot of money to go to university. I was so crushed, but he didn't crush my spirit in going on. So I got to university because my poor community in Clearwood collected funds and sent me to university. And this is why we say, you know, a child, every community should also take care of its children. So I had these wonderful opportunities, but my basic message to students, young people all over the world, is that you don't know how far you can go, but you can lay the ground now. You have to study and work very hard. And that's what I've done throughout my career. I was a legal attorney for anti-apartheid activists, ANC, Unity Movement, for 30 years, close to 30 years. So you need that level of experience to become a judge, I would say, because you're really versed in the law. I had finished the Harry Gwala, the ANC trial in Peter Maddisburg, and I went to Robben Island to tell them that we lost the appeal. And they were comforting me instead of me, you know, because I was really, really disappointed because we had a good case. And so Harry Gawler said, don't blame yourself. You must remember this is all a political fight, even in the courts. Why don't you take our court records, take it to the United States and see what other judges would say about the evidence. So it was, I applied for a scholarship and that's why I got to Harvard. I already had my two degrees, the BA and LLB from Natal University. And at Harvard, I completed the master's 
in law and the doctorate, doctorate in juridical science. And at the mo- at that time, my colleagues, other lawyers said, why do you want all these degrees? It's not like you can charge more fees because you just need a BA, LLB to be a lawyer or even to be a judge. And I said, well, you're spending your money on buying a Mercedes Benz. I want to follow my interests in law because I feel the, that you have to have an understanding of international law to raise human rights arguments in the courts. So long story, that's how I got interested in uh, to become an international judge. Well, obviously, it's not so easy. So President Nelson Mandela appointed me as an acting judge in KwaZulu-Natal. It was first woman of color. You know, and he phoned me. It was such a lovely surprise. He phoned me and he didn't say, well, I'm trying you out, do your work, job properly, don't let me down. You know, that this is what people usually say, but not him. He said, this appointment gives me great joy. I hope it will become permanent soon. So before it became permanent, he and the Minister of Justice and Foreign Affairs submitted my name to the United Nations General Assembly. This was South Africa being reunited with the United Nations after our elections in 94. So this was early 1995 when my name was submitted by them to be elected as a judge on the United Nations International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. We call that ICTR. And that was based in Arusha, Tanzania. And it meant I had to leave home at a crucial point in our history, our legal history. But if you get a call like that and member states elect you, there is no question that you would go and make a contribution. So that's how I became an international judge. And there's so much richness in that answer, Judge Pele, when you think about the firsts and the groundbreaking strides that you made as an acting judge. First, female, a black female acting judge in KwaZulu-Natal. But there was another first even before that in terms of being the first woman to begin a law practice in what was then the Natal province in South Africa. And this was way back in 1967. And I know that your memory is as sharp as a razor to be able to invoke for us what it means to be a black woman in South Africa at that time in the legal profession, trailblazing. And to be poor with no contacts. That would have helped me. I went from office to office. They're mostly white law firms and got the same answer that we can't give you a job because we cannot have white secretaries taking instructions from a black person. And secondly, you're a woman. What if you fall pregnant? And thirdly, class discrimination. You know, I say it's gender, race and class discrimination is they ask me, well, what does your father do? Is he a businessman? Can you bring us work to the office? So that's the brick wall I met with. And that's when I decided, you know, always that's another message in my life. Whatever you see a crack, then you enter. You enter and use that opportunity. So, of course, I'm talking now, super confident, not then. You're very young and nobody's supporting you. You know, various friends and family helped me set up that office. My father and my brother's father-in-law both came and built the partitions. 
that kind of help I had to set up this office. Someone lent me a typewriter and a ream of paper. And I thought the worst that will happen is I'll have to close shortly. But it didn't. And I got lots of help from other black attorneys. They passed work on to me. And that's how it all started. And I'm very pleased to tell you how many other women lawyers started their own practices after that. That is just amazing. When you think about um, pioneering in a context where there was so much repression and in the mix, as you've added, poverty, it really becomes such a remarkable story. And, and who would have thought? Did you know that you would you know, go on to have this amazing career ahead of you? Could you have dreamt it? Did you dream it? No, it's too remote a dream. Because we so we were so we were brought up under oppression. We had to build our own confidence and think big. We could not think big. This was a wonderful surprise where the president and minister of justice Dalla Omar appointed me as acting judge and then put my name forward. And you know I had the most votes. It doesn't matter. The six judges. I'm the only woman. It doesn't matter. But for me, it was significant that I had the vote of every African country and, of course, the uh, Security Council unanimously. It was often said that Africans are chauvinistic, they won't appoint women. But there you are, in um, 1995, the whole of Africa voted for me. So that meant a great deal to me. I never imagined, but I wanted to be a good lawyer, and that's why I studied international law. I want to go back to one of the things that you raised at the beginning of our conversation, and this is your role as judge of the UN International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. And if you reflect back, this was such a seminal moment because we, you know, we share this sort of twinning with Rwanda in terms of um, the accomplishment and the attainment of our freedom. And theirs in the lead up to their freedom was a great deal of bloodshed. And you had to traverse these really fine lines and, and, you, and you made some really interesting judgments when it came to the people who were involved, both politically, but also from a media perspective. And as a media practitioner myself, I found that really, you know, really quite fascinating. Take us back into uh, that time at the ICTR in Arusha, Tanzania, when, you know, you, you're appointed in a way that might have I think, messed with your own plans and your own aspirations for what you wanted to do, but you were handpicked to go and do this really mm. important task that stands out, you know, in the legal history, not only on the continent, but in the world. Well, really, uh, thank you for raising that. Firstly, it was uh, a lot of hard work. So nothing is easy. Judges work very hard. I want to make that clear. All over the world, they work really hard. And this is what happened. We had not been taught international law at our universities. So you had to catch up very fast on the law. Uh, it's true that it interrupted my own dreams because I wanted to serve, continue to serve as a judge in South Africa after such a long struggle in, in getting our de change to democracy. That's what I wanted to do. However, this was an exciting opportunity. And we were established after Rwanda asked the Security Council for a tribunal just like the Security Council set up a tribunal for former Yugoslavia. Soon I realized all the inequalities in the Western countries' support for Yugoslavia and the inequalities we faced in a rural, rural place. You know, there wasn't even pasteurized milk. 
and there was no supermarket, no banks, no tarred roads. These were all challenges, but you'll be surprised, Iman, how we grew to love the place because of the beautiful mountains that are there. But I'm I'm drifting, so let me say that I think they established the the UN established the Rwanda Tribunal because there was already one for Yugoslav established a year before that. Rwanda asked for this tribunal, but in the end they voted against the resolution because one, they wanted the court to be situated in Kigali, and two, they wanted the death penalty, and the UN member states are opposed to the death penalty in large measure. And thirdly, they wanted the temporal jurisdiction to be from somewhat earlier, I think 1980, instead of this court being established only for what happened in 1994. So temporal territorial jurisdiction, they voted against it. However, they supported the tribunal fully. And I went over to meet with President Kagami several times because the court needed support. We needed witnesses to come from there. It's always a challenge setting up a new institutions. It would have been so much easier to enter a South African courtroom where you have everything. So we had to play a a bigger role for justice. I'm so happy you mentioned these two cases because they are groundbreaking jurisprudence. One is the Akeyesu trial, and I was a judge in a three-judge bench. We worked very well together from uh, Senegal, Sweden, and South Africa. And that judgment for the very first time declared that rape and sexual violence against women and boys and men is a crime against humanity, is a crime of genocide and a war crime. So can you imagine up to that point, it had never been recognized as a crime. Sexual violence was always taken for granted, almost offered as rewards to the soldiers. And they were even facilitated, if you think of the comfort women issue in Japan, the Japanese war. So there you are. There, there's a state that facilitated this service and reward for soldiers. So that's the mentality that had to change. So the first decision on genocide itself having taken place, we had to spell out the elements of this crime. It had never been prosecuted before. And we and for sexual violence, I found that there was no internationally accepted definition of genocide. You have national definition, but not international. So we had to create a new definition. For that, I consulted many, many states. Most states had the definition, including South Africa, had the definition that there has to be penetration of the uh, woman by the male. And you have to have evidence of the penetration. But how can that help us in a war zone where hundreds and thousands of people, women especially, were violated on the, on those tear states and the hills. Nobody actually saw it, you know, and witnesses would get very uh, irritated with us probing questions about, well, did you see him penetrate her? And, and so the witness would say, he pulled the girl out of our lines, took her away, or I saw him drop his pants on the hilltop. So therefore, the new definition that we created is gender neutral because it happens to women and men. And it is um, not a body part definition. And this is what we said, if I remember correctly, that rape is the 
a physical invasion of a sexual nature under coercive circumstances. So it doesn't say it's, it's only what happens to women or girls. And I'm very happy to say that has that definition has been adopted partly in the Rome Statute. It's been adopted by two states in the United States, and it's been adopted by South Africa. You will remember that in South Africa, a magistrate could not believe that he had to send, he had a case before him of a little boy child who had been molested, where the sentence is much lower than if it had been a girl child victim. And he felt the suffering of the victim was the same. So he sent that up to the higher courts. The higher courts sent it to the Constitutional Court. The Constitutional Court quoted my judgment of Akiyesu and asked the South African government to change the definition. So you see, Iman, we do small things. We don't know how far it would go. But if you have the opportunity, you have to do that. You have to break that brick wall. Everywhere, you know, in every corner of the world I go to, people recognize me for that judgment. The media judgment that you mentioned, Iman, I am more proud of the media judgment because people were horrified at the notion that you can charge journalists and the owners of a radio station or media for the crime of genocide when they didn't hold a machete or a gun, they didn't actually do anything. So how could we have found them guilty of genocide? And so when we delivered that judgment, the whole media was there and it hit the first page, front pages of, of papers like New York Times and Washington Post. And they all support the judgment. And why? Because even though the media has freedom of the press, freedom of expression, they, it comes with responsibilities. So you can't instigate or promote violence and genocide. And that is in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. We drew it from there and we uh, built the case on the fact that had it not been for that radio station, it was called Radio RTLM, spreading these poisonous messages and also directing the killers. You know, here there's some Tutsis approaching the roadblock at this point. Watch out for their small noses and break them. That, that's an example of the kind of hate speech and provocative speech. So if, when you understand the facts, you can see why the media accepted that judgment. Let me say before I finish my answer on this, there was so much prejudice against the Rwanda tribunal from certain countries and media interests. Uh, one of the lawyers said at the court, well, this is yet another African institution bound to failure. Obviously, it came from a northern a white man. And this is why I'm proud of our judgments, because the major groundbreaking judgments came from the Rwanda tribunal and is being followed all over the world. And this tribunal was, it's true, it was very expensive, long drawn out. You can criticize it in many aspects, but the Rwanda tribunal tried and convicted close to 50 leaders, political leaders, military leaders, and the ones responsible for lots of killings, giving orders and so on, and the, this radio station. This is what we are hoping for in South Africa, that those who are criminally liable at the top for corruption 
should be brought to trial. This is what we mean by wanting justice done. You know, I went there to serve for one year. I thought I'll resign and come back. I stayed for eight and a half years because of the courage of these witnesses, especially the women witnesses talking about what had been done to them. And one of them, or quite a few, said to us in the courtroom, we are here because we wanted to see justice done. So we have, I had to examine my own conscience and fulfilled my role as a judge. I want to circle back to that concept in just a moment when you have an idea for how your professional career will evolve and the commitments that you make and what happens when you revert to that spirit of what prompted you to pursue law, uh, not only as a career, but almost as a belief system, as a philosophical endeavor in your life. I think that's so powerful, Judge, and I want to come back. I want to come back to that in a second. But I want to go back to Jean-Paul Akieso. When you're in that moment of, I mean, you don't know that somehow things are going to turn out in a legal journey, so to speak, or, you know, in, in a journey in a court when you're hearing testimony. And yet it turns out that these groundbreaking judgments, these precedent-setting judgments are made that relate not only to the case that you're prosecuting, but also, or that you're hearing or presiding over, but to other areas of the law in places you couldn't have anticipated, including in a little courtroom in a magistrate's court in South Africa. Tell me about the, the chutzpah, in a sense, that you need as a human being to be able to pursue that course, despite everything else. You know, uh, these are judicial ethics, but it's the ethics in any job that you hold. It's to perform your best. Why wouldn't you? The public look up to you to do exactly that. And very often when I've received many awards and truly blessed with uh, honorary doctorates from many universities outside the country and here. So when I'm rewarded and acknowledged, then I say, you know, I was a public servant and I was doing my job properly. A lot has to do with judicial ethics as well. You have to follow that. You can't, And I think most judges do. We are committed. Uh, US, one U.S. ambassador asked me, so who's your boss? Who are you accountable to? I am accountable to my president. He was talking about the U.S. president. And I said, we judges are accountable to the law and to the public who are watching us. That reflects so beautiful about accountability. Um, I think for everyone who's looking at the legal profession, even those who are aspirant lawyers, want to know what does it take within oneself to stay that course, even you know, when, when the evidence is just horrible and you know, you're reliving things in a sense uh, with everyone else who's giving evidence. I think it takes a lot because what you've heard and seen stays with you for life. It disturbs your sleep and you suffer with victims who have suffered. What made me go on, despite, oh, of course, I was a big complainer. Don't get me wrong. I complained about everything I compl- because we had less power. We all know what that's like right now in South Africa. But in Arusha, no power, no computers, no telephones. Did I tell you the bishop's wife offered to give me milk from her cows? And she asked me, how many pints do you want? That kind of thing. And that, unfortunately, was prioritized by me instead of being educated by the witnesses. Or at least that's the way we started off. And often I would say, what am I doing here? I want to go back home to my city. 
And then you listen to the witnesses. Your conscience moves you to say you have a job to do here. So everyone knows this, but I was the judge who asked the first question to a witness about the occurrence of sexual violence. So the, when the, we were over with the case, it went on appeal to the appellate division of the two tribunals. The one of the grounds of appeal raised by the lawyers is that I was biased, I'm a feminist, and I was influenced by the women who were demonstrating in the streets of Rwanda. You know, they never seem to ask these questions of male judges, but assume because I'm a woman, yes, I am taking sides here and, and I'm not impartial. And of course the appeals caught through that out. They said that, uh, in fact, it should be a criteria for a judge to have some experience of gender-based violence and so on. So it's a, it's a conscience. It's caring, caring about the victims and what they've suffered, you know, really caring and understanding their point of view. Uh, how did I attempt to even draw a new definition? Because I asked this one woman who gave evidence of her six-year-old daughter being raped by four men, and she knew the names of the men. This was all in the conflict, in the midst of the war. She herself was raped. A number of other women with her were raped. She gave all that evidence, and I asked her, um, not me, I didn't ask the prosecutor, and he was also from the U.S., asked her, yes, but did he penetrate you? See, he was watching out for the requirements of the definition as he knew it. So did he penetrate you? And she said, that's not the only thing they did. I'm a mother and these are young boys and they didn't respect me. And the things they said to me when they were raping me. Now, that kind of answer alerted me and should alert judges on how victims view the this crime and how they, they explain their suffering. And so we said in our judgment that it's, it's like taking away their life. This is the impact on victims. So caring about while or at the time following the strict rules that all judges do, you will not convict if there isn't evidence beyond reasonable doubt, but you can still be empathetic. Quite a few women judges uh, shed tears, by the way. I, I was at one conference where that, that alone was discussed about women shedding tears, women judges, as if that is such a drawback for them. And each one explained they were moved by the evidence. It doesn't mean that they were impartial. They were moved by the evidence to the extent that they shed tears. That's really profound what you're saying, especially when we think about South Africa and its proliferation of GBV cases, uh, very few of which actually make it into the court. And this need to have, even though justice you know, should be blind, that empathetic, in a sense, connecting to what the, the victims are saying and their experiences. It's very, very powerful stuff, Judge. I want to come back to South Africa and back again to 1973 again. You mentioned Robben Island at the beginning. And there was a really important outcome of um, a case that you were a part of regarding uh, conditions in Robben Island, you know, leading to a, another uh, important precedent being set there in terms of prisoner rights. Do you want to take us back there for a moment? Very few lawyers or no lawyers had access 
to their clients on Robben Island, except for Mr. Mandela. And so we would occasionally hear stories of how badly they were being treated, the prisoners. Like Indra Snaidu in his book, he was a Robben Island prisoner, writes about the fact how they set the dogs upon the uh, inmates there and they were bitten and so on. We would hear this, but no lawyer had access to them. I went to see my clients ostensibly to discuss their appeals. And I make sure that we get all the court reports to them. Now, you have these interviews within sight, uh, but out of hearing. But we all knew that they they listened to every conversation, including when Winnie Mandela visited Mandela. No privacy. They listened to that entire conversation. And so we had to be, I had to be very creative. I come from the outside. So I had some of them read that law report loudly while we held conversations. I'm not supposed to talk about the prison conditions, but that is what they wanted to talk about, not the appeal. And so they found, they put in a cell where they were, where it was now crowded with the additional inmates, but the food provisions was not increased. They were charged for violating prison regulations, but they didn't have a copy of the regulations, didn't know what their rights are. And Kader Hashim, one of the accused, he was also a lawyer, he started, he wrote down a petition to the officer commanding Robben Island and mainly asked whether they could teach English classes to their Transkayan comrades and a whole list like that, for which they punished him and threw him into solitary confinement for six months. And so he didn't see the others until I went over and, I, and they had to bring him and we saw all of us together. And the main thing they wanted is for me to do something, bring an application. But they warned me or cautioned me that Mr. Mandela sent a message to them that he doesn't want any court action because, you know, understandably, he didn't trust the apartheid courts. And he felt if we go to court, we will surely lose, then the ceiling will come down. He preferred negotiation. So I come out, this is 1971-72, very young, very immature and inexperienced. So I went around consulting senior counsel, you know, of all race groups, consulting our comrades who were lawyers, just spoke to everyone. And the majority decision encouraged me to go for it. We brought an application in the Cape High Court. And at that time, you know, I never used the language human rights or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, nothing. We didn't know about it. We used common law about what are rights and what are privileges. So do do prisoners have rights? And this is what the court spelled out. Firstly, they said that prisoners have a right to have a copy of the regulations so they will know what's right and wrong. Secondly, they had a right to a lawyer. And if they broke any prison regulation or were charged for anything, there has to be a court case. They have to bring a magistrate from Cape Town and hold a hearing and allow defense lawyers and so on. And um, the other right is they had a right to study. This meant a great deal to them. They all told me it helped them survive because they were able to study and get books and so on. The only right they were not allowed, and it was declared a privilege, is the right to smoke. 
So that's a privilege. That didn't mean much to the inmates, to my clients. Obviously, it made a difference in the life of all prisoners on Robben Island, including Mr. Mandela. And it made a difference to all prisoners in every prison in our country. So you begin with something, you win some and you lose some, but the benefits to all were there. So I'm very happy about that. You know, at that time under apartheid, there were certain ethics controlling lawyers. So I had to use my judgment to break those rules, talk about matters that they wanted to talk about, for instance. And particularly, we did very well in this. The prison said that they had put in Kader Hashim separately because of their policy of segregation, not isolation. So I was able to, you know, I'm in and out from the courtroom to visit them with, on the excuse that I'm consulting them on their appeal. And so Kader drew a sketch of what's outside his door. So it was Sesmanda imprisonment, what the Afrikaans word for imprisonment, I forget now, I knew it then, yes. So it was a, a penalty. Yeah. I mean, it, it's really interesting. Again, you know, this this uh, judgment comes out in 73 by Judge Diedmont. Now political prisoners, uh, through the intervention that you had in this case, had rights and privileges. They now have the right of access to lawyers, the right for a trial uh, when it comes to alleged violations of uh, prison regulations. You know, people could now have lawyers. And also it was an opportunity to expose the prison conditions at the time. You know, at that time, there was the biggest, the newspaper around Daily Mail had it on their front page. The curtain has lifted on Robben Island for the very first time. However, what I would like to share with you and uh, listeners is that at the time my husband was detained, also in 1971, 54 people, 54 freedom fighters had died mysteriously in custody under detention by the Scotch police headed by this one man. He was called Roynek Swanapool. So it's the one person. And firstly, I was sent to London by the defense team to gather evidence from others, mainly ANC people who were in exile, on their treatment while they were in detention in South Africa. And I then came back with uh, a large number of affidavits, all notarized and so on. And one of the people I interviewed was Albie Sachs. Uh, and actually, it was his wife at that time who had been you know, knocked about, hair pulled, and so on by the security police. So I came back with that set of affidavits, and I had the affidavits of 10 of my clients, 10 of whom had been charged, and each of them had suffered horrendous abuse and even sexual violence. I used those affidavits to bring an application in my husband's name. I could do that because I had his power of attorney. We brought the application in the, in the Natal division of the High Court, and we asked for an interdict, an order preventing the security police from using any forms of torture against him. And we supported that application with all these affidavits. And of course, the police were furious. They said they never used torture, no, and that there was no need for this order. So there were some discussions and so on with the judge. And the judge then gave an order where the security police are uh, prohibited from using any forms of torture. 
And then the judge said, what's the point of this order if my husband doesn't know about it? So he ordered that the sheriff should go and serve it on him. And of course, he by then had been held for many months in terrible conditions in Peter Maddisburg, one of the really old cells. And this Swanapool was in the courtroom all the time, the head of the uh, security police. He would boast to me, yeah, we put your husband in the worst cell possible. So my husband said when the, his door opened and somebody threw this, he realized it was the sheriff. Uh, he just burst out crying. And he said they never touched him after that. The outcome of this, the part that I'm proud of, of course, I didn't succeed in getting my husband out. That was my goal. Didn't get that. But we made sure that these affidavits reach the anti-apartheid movement in New York. And they and the ANC had observer status. They raised to, you know, and this was the first time they had hard evidence of torture happening and it's official public documents they in the, filed in the court case they were able to use that and they asked for two things one sanctions against apartheid south africa but ronald reagan and margaret thatcher refused to do that and years later when i was high commissioner for human rights from 2008 i had the opportunity to tell the security council members this is what two of you did you used your veto you used your veto to support racism when racism is one of the cardinal uh, principles that the UN prohibits. Anyway, that's the end story. The second thing that the uh, South Africa asked the GA, the General Assembly, is to have a convention against torture. Mm -hmm. And that's how we got a convention against torture, which now benefits all victims all over the world. And as High Commissioner, I had a lot to do with the Committee Against Torture. These are committees set up by the UN of experts who receive complaints, do the actual investigations, make recommendations to states. So many, many mechanisms to expose torture grew out of that one little act. You know, I'm sitting and listening to you and wishing yeah. that we could spend a week together, that we could have a series or a mini series just on our conversation today. Because when you talk about specific cases um, and the consequences and the judgments in these cases having such far-reaching consequences that affect our law uh, even today, it's just mind-boggling. This application and affidavits that you're talking about in relation to your husband, but also with respect to the Terrorism Act, are now part of a very important repository, the UN, in the way that the UN documented and, and documents the crime of apartheid in our country. When you talk about the way torture is perceived in the world from a jurisprudential point of view, or rape as a weapon of war, essentially, you know, as a jurisprudential tool, it's just absolutely stunning, mind-boggling and, and awe-inspiring. I want to as we come to the closing moments, and I had all these ideas, this grand architecture for our conversation today, but I'm very satisfied that we have been able to go into some of the detail and the meat around some of your key appointments. You talked about, uh, you know, all of the awards and the recognition that you received. If I'm looking at my, my CV of you, it runs into more than a page. Um, your affiliations run into in, into more than a page, and and not all of them are in South Africa. A lot of them are global. 
this is a life and a career that's just been phenomenal and it's taken you all over the world. And I suppose as we begin to close, one contemporary issue I want to bring up, though, before we get into some of the personal is this ongoing issue of South Africa, you know, that in government and in the opposition, there's a lot of talk about um, the country's reluctance to arrest uh, a Russian president, Vladimir Putin, when he comes to South Africa later this year to attend uh, the BRICS summit. And it's making us reevaluate, or the conversation is reevaluating, you know, being a signatory to the Rome Statute and, and, and the ICC. What are your thoughts on that? How would be the right way to navigate this? Let me begin to say that, you know, I, uh, while I was uh, finishing my term in Arusha as a judge on the Rwandan court, it just touched me so much that people in South Africa, various institutions, other judges had nominated me to be a judge on that international criminal court. And so I was South Africa's nominee and was voted, served as a judge on the court. So I do know the the law properly and how it functions function there. I have two answers on this question of the arrest warrant issued by the ICC prosecutor against Putin. Firstly, that, uh, you know, we are urging the prosecutor to attend to other matters because he has to be impartial and treat matters equally. He's sitting with complaints related to Palestine and Afghanistan. And of course, we like the speed with which he acted in respect of the situation in Ukraine. He should do the same with the others because he is an international prosecutor. Secondly, uh, a legal answer is our courts have already determined that South Africa has an obligation under its own laws and under the Rome Statute to arrest anyone who's, who's in the country and who is being indicted by the International Criminal Court. So the law is clear if he comes then following the al-Bashir, the leader of Sudan, where South Africa made the mistake of not arresting him. So the best solution is we must hope that Putin does not come to South Africa. However, I do empathize with the reasoning of developing countries that the Ukraine situation is not really a developing country situation. We need to know who, what triggered this war. Why did President Putin attack? And and when there's an ongoing violence going on, how do you pick on prosecuting the one side and not the other? I was the high commissioner who set up the human rights office in Ukraine when the Crimea invasion happened. And that office is still functioning. And we submitted reports after reports, my team on the ground, on violations of human rights by both sides, by the Russian fighters who live in Ukraine, supported by the Russian government, as well as Ukrainians. So there's always two sides to the case. We would like, I think there's some difficulty in um, deciding while a conflict is going on, which side you want to uh, support or or name as perpetrators. So, the, But legally, it's very clear we have an obligation to arrest anyone who's been indicted by the ICC and who's in your territory. That's the law. Um, sorry to give you a long answer because I've been asked this so often. The Western countries and media there, you know, join this presumption 
that this is a, a really a priority issue for the whole world. Whereas in that, you know, I raise the fact that the underbelly of Western prejudices came out during COVID. Our president Ramaphosa had to make a strong statement on the um, fact that rich countries such as the USA were hoarding medicines that we needed very much in Africa. So that's what I mean. We, so I just come from a conference in Nairobi, actually, where the whole discussion was on double standards. I would love to have another conversation with you on double standards, because this is also part of the discourse that's happening in South Africa now as we reevaluate uh, you know, ourselves, not only from the outside in, but from the inside out in terms of, you know, how we view how the rest of the world views us and how our priorities should be shaped uh, and, and where the, you know, external agendas sit in relation to our priorities as a country. In closing, Judge, because, oh, I really do wish, and I, we definitely have to have another opportunity to talk. Um, but I, I want to end with your words of advice both to the public who look to the law as the final arbiter in the pursuit of justice, and justice is slow in South Africa in, on many an occasion. A lot of people can't afford fancy lawyers, but they look to the court to resolve their issues. What are your words of encouragement to them and, and, and to those who aspire to be just like you? Yes, I think we uh, we really need judicial reform, and we seem to be following the colonialist model in rendering justice and and providing education. You remember that the students were on the streets saying, do the poor not have a right to education? And that poster reminded me that how much is the, uh, that we've imbibed from the colonial system in that it's the rich who can access doctors, universities and justice. So there's something seriously wrong that we all have to have a conversation. I'm very glad that we now have social media where people are expressing their views and asking questions. So we have to preserve the independence of the judiciary. People all over the world admire our constitution and and our independent judiciary. And therefore, we're still safeguarding the rule of law in our country. All of these we must preserve, but we also have to address the anger on the streets. And all over the world, this is what's happening. The rich are getting more and more rich and powerful, and the poor are getting poorer. And let me say that in Africa, I've been to very many countries. They look to us to set the example, to become a leader. Why? Because we have this good constitution and a good independent court, and we've had no conflict during our democracy. I, when I walked on the streets of Arusha this, in my early days, these children would run after me and say, Mandela, Bafana, Bafana. And other judges said to me, we know you South Africans, you work very hard. So let's live up to that motto and set a good example and set our country right. We're really sliding away fast. People are really unhappy. When you hear ordinary people saying we were better off under apartheid, we have to pay attention to that. Something is seriously wrong. Thank you very much for all your questions, Iman, and for giving me this opportunity. It's been such a delight. And I, I really want to visit you, hopefully see you again in person one day uh, soon. But I know that you're also very, very busy. And it also is just so wonderful to see uh, a fabulous woman who is still at work 
after all of these years, actually, 60-year career behind you in the law. And we thank you for sharing your sentiments with us today. It has been uplifting and inspirational, and we just wish you all the best in terms of your health, but also in terms of your future accolades and successes. Thank you so much, Judge uh, Navi Pillay. Thank you. That's a lovely message. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Legal Luminaries, a Jackpot original podcast by Duta and Jacaranda FM. I'm Imandra Petty. Find more episodes at jacarandafm.com. Just click on Jackpot.